I'm thankful for this privilege and opportunity to speak in this conference today. <clears throat> um, I'll explain just a minute, uh, for a minute, the outline. Uh, you'll notice that most of the outlines are rather extensive. When Brother Terrell called me, he said, Brother Duval, we're having a conference and we're having a lot of heavyweights in it, but uh, we're going to let you preach too. And uh, so we want some outlines submitted, but we do have some remedial readers in our auditorium. <clears throat> so uh, we want a skimpy outline, so uh, that's not really the way it happened, but I misunderstood uh, what he wanted, but you have a skeleton there. And that will kind of direct us. I would like to direct your attention to the book of Ephesians in the second chapter. And then to the book of Colossians. The second chapter of Ephesians beginning in the first verse. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. <clears throat> and then in the book of Colossians in chapter 2, the Colossian church was having some difficulty. There were some false teachers who were coming in their midst, and Paul gave a warning in that second chapter in verse 8. He says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Our subject today is depravity and humanism. Before we begin, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee again at this time, and our hearts are grateful for Your goodness unto us, thankful for the great truths from Thy Word that have been presented unto us. They've caused our hearts to rejoice. And Father, as we come to the subject now, and we think upon our condition, think upon our sinfulness, and realize our undoneness, in our terrible condition. Father, it rejoices our hearts that you loved us in spite of what we are, that you loved us even from the foundation of the world and manifested that love through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we just pray that you will help our hearts to rejoice at the truth of thy word. Help us to be aware and warned of the opposing truths or opposing ideas that are taught in our midst and among us. 
uh, in our world. We just pray now that you'll bless at this time in a very special way. Remove distractions from our hearts. Help us to center our thoughts upon thee. And may our Savior's name be exalted, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be dealing with two subjects in this message, two really opposing or contrasting subjects according to the Scripture. The two passages I've read, one talks about our deadness and sin and the terrible condition that we find our, found ourselves in before the Lord found us. And then the other is a warning of what's all around us, a warning to that church and I believe a warning to our churches as well. When we begin looking at the Bible and its definition of depravity, our text says here that we were dead in sin. And we were the children of wrath as a result of our very nature being corrupt. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that man in his natural state has been affected by sin to the degree that every faculty of his being is depraved. When we talk about the word depraved, we mean evil. And when we talk about the term totally depraved, we mean that man is, in a spiritual sense, totally evil. Now, there are some people who misunderstand this, and they say, well, I know some people that are not saved, and they're good moral people. We're not talking about morals, which is man's conduct among men, but we're talking about his spiritual condition when we talk about the subject of depravity. And that is man's relationship with God. He he does not have a good relationship with God. He may be a moral person to a neighbor or a friend. But his condition before God is not looked upon favorably by God because he has fallen. Fallen and is dead in trespasses and sin. Some people have the idea that uh, man is partially depraved and some of his faculties uh, were affected by sin, but I believe the Scripture clearly teaches us that all of the faculties of man were affected by sin. I didn't put Scripture uh, in the outline. One of the young men said, we're going to have a short sermon here. We've had some long ones, but he's not going to cover much. Well, I'm going to use some Scriptures for you. And the first one I'd like for you to turn to, if you, want, if you care to follow uh, in turning to these, is Genesis, the, the sixth chapter. The Bible teaches here that man's mind is depraved. And this is just prior to the flood, but it, the Scripture tells us in Genesis 6, 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man had not gone very long in history before we read this statement. But we see that as God does not restrain uh, man in his expressions, that he expresses himself more and more for what his heart really is. And when the depths of his heart comes out, God looks down and sees that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil 
continually. The mind of man is depraved and fallen. And there are other scriptures in this. We could read the whole, uh, much of the first chapter of Romans. And really there the, the reading is uh, so uh, explicit and so uh, terrible in describing the mind of man that it's embarrassing to us to even read some of that portion in mixed company. But that shows the condition that man has uh, fallen into. And he expresses himself because of his very nature. Now the scripture also says that man's heart is depraved. And Jeremiah is very explicit about this in the 17th chapter. In verse 9 he says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now that doesn't sound like God has a favorable position toward man's heart at all. It's uh, desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. It cannot be measured, the deceitfulness of man's uh, heart. And so his heart is depraved. His affection is depraved. John, the third chapter, in verse 19, says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. There's a reason for the evil manifestation of man. And the reason for that, that his, that his very affections are depraved, his very affections are evil in the sight of God. And he has no affection toward God at all in his lost condition. Scripture also says his conscience is depraved. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 15, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now, we've all talked to people whom we've tried to witness to, and they inevitably will try to build a good case for themselves. We don't have to present many scriptures to them to see that the Bible does not present a good case for them or for us. Man is in terrible condition. His depravity is such that it affects all of his being. And even his very conscience is depraved. His mind and conscience is defiled. In the sight of God. Isaiah in the first chapter describes those who've forsaken the Lord as being sick and defiled from their head to their feet. Why should ye be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's not a physical condition that God is describing there, though he uses some physical terms to describe the spiritual condition of man. But man has no ointment that he can mollify himself with. Man has no way that he can close uh, the openings that would drain him of any purity. Uh, he, he's, there's no way that he's bound up or healed in any way or tended to from the very head of his foot, uh, from the top of his head to his feet, to the sole of his feet, we see that man is a defiled being. The psalmist says that we're born in a depraved condition. Psalms 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, there are many who have a misunderstanding of this verse 
believing that this is the union of the husband and the wife that conceives the child that is evil. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's the thing conceived. The Adamic nature has been passed down to that who is that person who is conceived. And so he says here, uh, I was shaping in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner. And he goes on in the 58th Psalm to say, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are, be born, speaking lies. And any of us who have had experience with children, if the Lord has blessed us and given us children, we've observed that in them. Our parents have told us how we acted. Uh, we know that no one taught us that meanness. We came forth from the womb speaking lies and continue that because that's our nature to do. And so uh, the nature of man is described very clearly in Scripture. And there are many other verses that we could refer to, but this is just a scattering of uh, some verses that emphasize this point. The effects of depravity are all around us. The Scriptures make con uh, statements concerning this. We're told that man is spiritually dead. Here in this text that we've read, in verse uh, 1 of Ephesians 2, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. I remember the first time that I uh, heard that verse emphasized to, to really make an impression upon me. I was a church member, but a lost church member, uh, dating the girl who has become my wife for nearly 33 years. And uh, her pastor... Uh, got up one evening as I was, uh, we were sitting there in the, toward the back of the church, and he said, the scripture says, you're dead in trespasses and sin. He says, that's just as dead as can be. And we, it was a rural church. He said, it's as dead as a horse in the field or a cow in the field. And I thought, man, that's as dead as you can get. <laughs> but that's true. That's how dead we were. That's how dead we were. Because of our sin. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so we're under that condemnation. We're born spiritually dead. Man's nature is not subjected to the law of God. Romans 8.7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Man can't comprehend spiritual things. Oh yes, people are always wanting to tell you what the Bible says and what the Bible means, but unless they're born again, they can't comprehend spiritual things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And a dead man cannot discern those spiritual truths. What we see in the Word of God is, it's only by the quickening power of God that man can have help. And I'm thankful for that, and you as God's child today, I'm sure, are thankful for that also. It's the quickening power of God that makes the difference. John chapter 6 and verse 44, <clears throat> Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Man is unable in himself. In the 65th verse of that 6th chapter, And he said, Therefore said unto you that no man can come to me 
except it were given unto him of my father. And so, as we can see from this small selection of verses, the Bible does not give an uncertain sound regarding this. We don't hear a lot said about the depravity of man today. But it's a subject that ought to be emphasized. The Bible's very clear on it. The Bible tells us that man is in a sinful condition, that he is utterly hopeless in that sinful condition. And to show that this is not just selected individuals who are affected, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit in dealing with my heart showed me what a sinner I was. As I reflect back, I, rem I remember thinking I wasn't such a bad person. Oh, I knew there were sins in my life, but I would try to reform those, and I would try to overcome those, and I would try not to think those thoughts, and I would try not to do certain things, thinking that somehow that would impress God and make my case stronger than it was. But when the power of the Holy Spirit came, He showed me how unutterably sinful I was and what a horrible condition I was in. And it was at that time that I... Uh, pled for mercy from the Lord. I tell you, I was in a desperate shape. Uh, someone said here last night that when they were saved, they knew about that much. Well, I knew about three degrees less than that, I think. I really didn't even know how to believe, and I had to admit that to the Lord. Lord, I don't know how to believe, but the best I know how, I'm going to trust Christ with all my heart. And I tell you, He knows how to save, and He did. And He brought me to that place where I needed that Savior. And that's the importance of this doctrine of total depravity. Now, subject that I'm also to deal with is the subject of humanism. And this is a contrasting doctrine. And uh, here in Colossians, as Paul speaks to the Colossian church, he says, Beware. Beware, lest any man spoil you. And that idea of spoiling here is, lest someone come and take it from you, like a conquering a general would come and take the, the uh, victors of battle. He sought, beware lest someone take away the blessing of the Lord from you. Through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Humanism is a very prevalent problem in our day. It's not just a recent occurrence. We see the seeds of it and the development of it uh, throughout history. In historical theology, the, the ideas of Pelagius from the 5th century have affected the thinking of a lot of people concerning depravity. This, was, this man, Pelagius, was a British monk who believed that the fall of Adam caused man to be born in a mere innocent condition. He believed that instead of man having a positive holy attitude, as he had had before the fall, now he was merely innocent. And so this was the effect of Adam's sin. He said Adam's bad example was the effect that he had upon the race of mankind. He said that, Pelagia, he said that Adam's sin was not in any way inherited by his offspring. Now, there are many variations of Pelagian teaching today. 
but there are remnants of it around, all around us, in various forms of theology. In uh, secular history, during the Renaissance, the concept of the autonomous man developed. Now, the idea of the autonomous man was that man was the center of things. And when we begin studying the Renaissance, it's roughly the era of history between the 12th and 14th centuries. It developed at different times in different places in Europe. Italy, northern Italy was the first part, and then on up into Europe. But the idea of the Renaissance was a rebirth. And after the long period of the Dark Ages, men began... Uh, exercising in commerce more and making more money and endowing the arts and began digging up old books and began emphasizing education more strenuously. And many new ideas, they said, developed. But actually we find that most of those were just a rehashing of old ideas. And the whole idea of rebirth uh, really was just an awakening to the Greek and Roman period. And the ideas of Greek and Rome, the architecture, the literature, all of these ideas then began getting prominence. They called it the classical period. Historians uh, lay great stress in the Renaissance, and they say that it's affected our society, and it has. The humanistic elements especially have affected our society. And they say that we owe so much to the Renaissance. Well, I'm not so sure about that. But anyway, it, began, it was a period of time when man was emphasized and the paintings and the statues. And there was a lot of re, uh, religion involved in this, of course, because the Roman uh, Catholic Church controlled much of the uh, political arena in Europe at that time. And uh, there were a lot of religious relics drawn and, and statues and things like that that were carved. And so during this time, there was a, just a tremendous distortion of Bible truth. And uh, the, the importance of man was uh, just dwelt on continually. With the advent of Darwinism in the mid-19th century, there were many more unbiblical views that developed regarding the nature of man. Now, Dr. Terrell has talked a lot about this uh, in his uh, lecture unto us. Uh, Darwin has had a tremendous influence in our society. It's amazing how many people think that we really did evolve. They've just been taught that from a child. And some of the Pre-school books, if you'll look at them closely, imply this to children, teach this to children. And so this was a greater emphasis upon man. People began looking at man and thinking about man and forgetting about God. And a lot of uh, preachers got caught up in this. And, and really, during that period of the mid-19th century, there was just tremendous change in uh, theological positions. Henry Morris has just come out with a new book called The Long War Against God. I got that and been reading through it. Uh, it's a tremendous book. I believe it would be worth your money to get. 
And he really goes back and just shows the history of all the godlessness of man and how he has fortified his case and how he's tried to tear down the whole concept of thinking about God and building up man, putting him on the pedestal. Well, in one form or another, when we begin looking at Pelagianism or the Renaissance or Darwinism or any of these other isms, we could say in one form or another, each of these comes under the umbrella of what we call humanism. And that's what I want to talk about in the time that we have left is uh, this matter of humanism. In 1933, the Humanist Manifesto was drawn up. It was openly non-theistic. The writers did not believe in God and made no bones about it. They claimed to begin with humans and not God. To consider nature and not to consider man's duty to a deity or supreme being. Forty years later, uh, this, this first manifesto was signed by many prominent people in our society, not just in the United States, but internationally. Forty years later, in 1973, the Humanist Manifesto Number 2 was published. And it stated this, We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. Now, what do they start with in this very statement? We. Notice the difference between the Bible. In the beginning, God, the humanist manifesto, we. And it's as if they are gods here saying we can discover no divine purpose or providence. So that means there is none by implication. It's a very self-centered statement that they make, which they intend to. And uh, they go on to say, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. That uh, manifesto is advocated by a lot of people in our society and many of the educators of our society are influenced by that and uh, had input into that. There were uh, people high up in uh, education and in government, politics, international finance, and very prominent people, successful people in this world who were in on the, the drawing up of this manifesto, both of these manifestos. The humanistic path of life advocates a self-centered existence independent of a personal God. God has a comment about that. It's found in 1 Corinthians. He has probably many comments about that, but one comment that I want to call your attention to, 1 Corinthians 1.21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, and not the, not the act of preaching, but the foolishness of the thing preached. It pleased God by the preaching of the cross, if you would, to save them that believe. We ought not to get too disturbed uh, when we uh, uh, encounter those who are humanistic and those who advocate humanistic tendencies if we'll stay with our Bible. This past year... 
I took a young man who's staying with us, uh, Chris Fraser. He's the son of missionary Weldon Fraser in South Africa. He's come to stay with us to go to school. Uh, if he stayed in South Africa after he became 18, he would have to denounce his American citizenship. He would have to become a citizen of South Africa and have to uh, volunteer to um, be drafted there. And so Brother Fraser felt the need to send him back. And uh, he sent him back to enroll in Northern Kentucky University. And I took him over to the school. I hadn't been around a university much for some time, uh, just to the library a few times. But I took him over to get him uh, registered and found that they had uh, such a large enrollment that they were running over in their history classes. So I went back and talked to the professor, the chairman, later, and uh, he hired me to teach a history class there. Uh, while I was talking about the book that we were to use, and he gave me a choice of textbooks, and I was waiting for him, and another professor came by and invited me into his office to sit and talk, and he was a man from western Kentucky, down near Murray, Kentucky, originally. And uh, he told me, he says, I'm a Baptist. And he began giving me some pointers on uh, teaching the class. And he said this, he said, these kids will cheat on you. He says, of course, I believe in total depravity. And I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> and he said, now, he said, if you go down to the sociology department, he said, they won't even know what you're talking about. He said, they have no idea what total depravity is. But he said, uh, they're kind of mixed up down there anyway. And so we talked about the Lord and talked about... Uh, how the Lord had saved us, and we had a good conversation. And then he gave me some good pointers on uh, the class and the text that I would be using and, and uh, so forth. Well, <clears throat> second semester, Chris had to sign up for sociology. I graduated about 24 years ago from college, and when I had sociology, it was a study of social structures in our, in our society. I thought it was very boring, but I tell you what they're teaching now is what we did call abnormal psychology. And that's supposed to be the norm of our society. He went and signed up and went the first day. He said the professor came in and just ranted and raved with all kinds of profanity. They had to go get the textbook. He brought it home and he said, this doesn't look like a very good textbook. And I went through it and it was just chapter after chapter extracted from different books, and it was all abnormal, all kinds of homosexuality, all kinds of lesbianism that was taught to these freshmen, and it nauseated me. And I said, we'll see if we can get you changed to a different professor in a different textbook. And I called the history professor, and I said, we've got a problem. And I told him, and he said, well, they're all pretty weird down there. I don't know whether we can do anything for you or not. But we looked through it, and I finally decided we'd put him in a speech class. It'd be easier than trying to go through that. This is the norm of our society. This is the result of humanism. This is the advent, the, the ascent of man. And when you read it, it is nauseating. The influential people of our society have drawn up this humanist manifesto. Uh, the second manifesto uh, is more blatant than the first and signed by more people. And actually there were others that endorsed it, many more that endorsed it after it came out. 
Now, in the Humanist Journal in 1986, there was an article that appeared concerning fundamentalism. And what they meant by that is all of those who believe the Bible. And this is what it said. Fundamentalism is part of a fantasy world that many people believe or wish to be true. These people wish that the reason for human existence is an afterlife and that their lives are guided by a benevolent deity. In actuality, events in the universe may be based upon chance and physical laws that have always existed, and human existence has no other meaning than that we exist. I tell you, if the only reason for life is that we exist, we might as well get it over with. As one brother said, I think I'd take a 38 to my head if this is all there was to it. You can understand someone committing suicide if the only purpose of our living is just the fact that we exist. But you can see here, people are being told that we live in the fantasy world. I believe the opposite is true. In the magazine, The American Atheist, in a 1988 issue, Christians are spoken of in this article as cowardly and irrational. And it says we, that we have an infantile system, belief system, that was programmed into us when we were children. The Lord saved me when I was 19. It's true I had some Christian influence. But I tell you, to say that uh, Christians have an infantile belief system is a terrible distortion of the truth. There is more depth of truth that has been presented last night and today than these fellows would ever find in a thousand years. This is not an infantile system. I tell you, there's so much in the Scripture, you feel like an infant when you go to it and try to plumb some out of it. There is such vast stores there. But it's not an infantile belief system, as the atheists would say. Well, atheists is only one of the, the uh, philosophical group redefining depravity. Really, most of modern psychology is built upon the concept of the innocent child that resides within us. Modern psychologists do not recognize man as being depraved. Much of it, which much of psychology that labels itself Christian psychology, is a denial of basic biblical principles. We ought to be careful what Christian psychology we read. When philosophy and psychology take preference over biblical teaching, we need to be very careful about it. It will lead us astray, especially as it relates to the doctrine of total depravity. Our view on total depravity will affect our view on salvation. And those who do not believe that man is totally dead and totally depraved will believe that man's salvation can somehow come with a percentage at least of human accomplishment, which is totally contrary to the Scripture. Norman Vincent Peale, who is from Cincinnati, uh, has been selling a brand of what he calls positive thinking for many years through all of his books. It's now being marketed uh, via television under a different brand name, Possibility Thinking, uh, by the smiling heretic Robert Schuller. It's surprising how many so-called sound Baptists have Schuller's books in their homes. They don't know. They think this fellow is really a nice fellow. Well, I tell you, you begin reading what he says and you find out he's not such a nice fellow when it comes to believing the Bible. He said in a Christianity Today interview, 
I don't think anything that has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. I got a book that was sent to me, uh, and it's called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. I didn't ask for it. It was sent to me. After reading it, I thought I'd throw it out, and then I decided, well, I may need it sometime to refer to. I turned it upside down and put it behind the other books in my I didn't think it deserved to be right side up. It's full of heresy. And what he says is that really man's lostness is his, is his loss of self-esteem. If he can get his self-esteem, then uh, he will be saved. That's the, the uh, important thing that he needs. Now, he has tremendous influence. Robert Schuller has tremendous influence, and people just run to him and think that he's such a fine fellow. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, in Volume 1, says, According, Accordingly, in every age, who, he who is most forward in extolling the excellence of human nature is received with the loudest applause. And that's true. People don't like to be told that they're sinners. I attended a summit on the family in northern Kentucky in the fall of 1987, and uh, in attending that summit, uh, the Kentucky Post sponsored it, and it was in the interest of all of our communities there in northern Kentucky, and uh, they had some discussions with the various agencies that affected society, and of course, the church, they said, well, the church is one, the school is one. They came out with a... Uh, report that finalized their findings. And they said this, concerning the church, the church needs to update its preaching and teaching. Brethren, take heed. <laughs> That's the consensus of these great leaders in northern Kentucky. The church needs to update its preaching and teaching. Concerning the schools, they said, well, the school clearly needs to reinforce family values. But who should the school actually, but how should the school actually teach moral values? That raises the issue of who would determine what values would be taught. Well, I'd be glad to tell them whose values could be taught if they would listen, but they don't want to listen to that. They said schools should be turning out students, uh, should not be turning out students who have immoral values. But teachers are afraid to teach value systems because administrators fear community reaction. In other words, they said, we've got a mess on our hands. We need to clean up this mess. How do we clean up our mess? Let's not wash. We're afraid to do anything. And that's exactly where humanism has gotten us. I remember Brother Kazee saying the problem of society is the very ones who have messed it up are the doctors of it now. And that's true. Uh, the ones who have got us to where we are are the ones who are now trying to give us the, do the doctrine that we need. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verses 3 and 4, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, 
lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. Who are we dealing with? We're dealing with blind people. They may have degrees behind their name, but they are blind. Blind to the Word of God and willfully so. Now often the Bible doesn't label uh, some persons that it tells us about as humanists, but it gives us many examples of this doctrine. And I want to briefly touch on these and then I'm through. In Luke the 18th chapter, we read of a Pharisee who said, God, I thank Thee that I am not as other men, even as this Pharisee. He was a humanist. He's teaching our young people today. And then, as he went on to brag about himself that he was not a sinner, the Bible says he did not go away justified. That publican did. A humanist view of eternity is presented in the 16th chapter of Luke. The rich man did not like the eternity he faced in hell. This is an eternity that present-day humanists deny that it exists. I believe that that is the ultimate destination of humanists. Those who defy God will ultimately see the judgment, the eternal judgment of God come upon them. Now, all of this is important unto us because of the matter of salvation. And really, all of this conference and all of these doctrines that we've talked about relate to that in one way or another. Is salvation by human accomplishment or is salvation by divine accomplishment? Is it by divine revelation unto it or is it by human revelation unto us? When the humanists say, we don't perceive that there's a God, who's to be believed? I would rather believe my Bible. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. My final statement is to read Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This is the ultimate that every humanist will have to face and every other unbeliever. The Lord inspired Paul to write, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God's name be praised if he has worked in your heart to bring you to a place of recognizing your sinfulness and drawing you to the marvelous Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us glorify his name in all that he has done for us. Thank you.